welcome to the Bronova Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Okay, hello everyone and good evening to you, Richard. Welcome to the Bro Nouveau Podcast. Well, I'm glad to be here. I'm looking forward to a creative conversation. That's the best kind. Would you describe yourself as a conversationalist? Yes. And no, that's a good, that's a funny question. (laughs) (laughs) If, you know, I'm sitting with a group of people and after an hour they're talking about the restaurants they've been to, their vacations and gossip and this back and forth. uh, I can do that for a while. But if somebody says, hey, Rich, what is meaningful to you? And we start getting into those conversations. Look out clock. (laughs) You know, we're going to keep going forever. (laughs) So for me, you know, as a philosophy major, a therapist, I'm, I don't have the, all the answers. And I'm just curious as all get out from people I talk to about how they live their lives, what their values are, how they transitioned from behaviors that don't serve them to behaviors that serve them well. So if we're in a conversation like that, I'm like the, uh, you know, just uh, just happy as can be. Awesome. Well, we're cut from the same cloth in that way, I think. Okay. Yeah, conversations of substance, that's where it's at. So that's very cool. When you were in training and uh, schooling as a therapist, what was the modality of the day? What, what kind of paradigms and teaching philosophies were you absorbing at that point? Oh, boy. The academic work itself was fairly standard, straightforward, without a lot of effectiveness in terms of actually dealing with real people, with real problems, while you're in real time with them. So where my really training come from was the Gestalt Institute in San Francisco, which was the generation after Fritz Perls. And a lot of body therapy that I did personally, like Reikian therapy, and more recently, uh, NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, to learn how our brain works and how we effectively make change. So I have a broad spectrum and including a lot of therapeutic groups along the way, a lot of things that were effective and some things were supportive of maintaining painful situations so that you could be a hero around your pain. So there was some things that even I thought were counterproductive. But anyway, so right now, how I work is I look at what are the symptoms, what is the behavior, and then I ask, what is the positive positive intent of this behavior. What? <laughs> no. <laughs> eating three pieces, eating a whole pizza, there's no positive intent. So we work with them for a while and we actually come to a positive intent. And sometimes the positive intent is something I just want to feel good for the moment, especially if we're looking at addictions or other behaviors that, you know, in that moment. I work with a lot of financial professionals and traders and sometimes they just need to 
to get in there and trade and feel good and feel like they're doing something, even if they know, even if they know their behaviors are going to be counterproductive. Of course, the classic, the classic compulsive behavior of immediate gratification to escape oh, yeah. some other underlying discomfort in, in my assessment. Well, that's really interesting. You have the psychological interest in training because we're here to talk about finances and our relationship to money and then Mm -hmm. more broadly how men are coping with the changing dynamics of money. But that's great that you're, you know, well-rounded, have a lot of interest. I see a whole stack of books back there. So, (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. How did you how did you evolve from an interest in psychology towards relationships to money specifically? Well, let me tell you about how a very personal story. Uh, I worked for a large arbitrage firm after college, and they were option traders, and they had you know million hundreds of millions of dollars of capital. They had. Uh, all sorts of brainy quants. They had some of the earlier computer systems way back then, and they could determine option values. And so I worked very hard for them, made a lot of money, did well. And I decided, and then I was transferred to Chicago. Parent, <laughs> so family wasn't happening in Chicago. So left the firm, moved back to San Francisco, and started trading on my own. First year, I was very careful. I made $125,000. Low risk, very careful. Next year, 150, 175, 200, 200, 200. And that's brought us to April of 1995. I heard a voice in the middle of the night, and the voice said, Rich, you're only worth $200,000 a year. Woke up, looked around. No one is in the room. My wife was still sleeping peacefully. (laughs) (laughs) So I got up, showered, dressed, and drove across the Golden Gate Bridge to the uh, floor of the Pacific Exchange where I was the independent market maker. The doors weren't open yet, so I sat on the concrete and thought about what did that voice mean? Where did it come from? And I realized it was one of the deepest parts of me, a belief of unworthiness. So the doors to the exchange opened, and I, and they don't have pits anymore like this. <laughs> but if you can imagine a pit with 100, 150 people in it, and then there's order book officials and exchanges and all, you know, dozens of screens. And I normally stood in the back, very carefully taking small bits out of orders. And this time, I went down and stood in the best spot in the pit. Now, your readers probably don't, or your listeners probably don't appreciate, but there's no, you don't own a spot. It's held by the toughest, the meanest, the the guy with the most capital, uh, the guy who had the most social presence. You know, it, it, like in any school or any place, there's a social hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes they were just mean SOBs. And, but they held the spot. So I went and stood in the best spot. Me, Rich Friesen, philosophy major, stood in the best spot in the pit. <laughs> <laughs> so the other traders and market makers kept drifting in. And uh, just five minutes before the bell, the guy who always stood there came in. And he kind of looked at me. 
And he started a little small talk. He looking at the clock. A couple minutes before the bell, he tapped me on the shoulder. I didn't move. So pushing match started. And the exchange official said, if you guys break out into a fight, it's a $10,000 fine automatically for both of you. So I held my ground. And the opening bell went off. And it was an option pit. So you had lots of series that opened. So every, so normally, you know, very quiet, but this time, every series. And I got to step away from the microphone or I'm going to blow yours out. Okay. You know, buy 100, sell you 50, buy 20, sold, sold. <laughs> oh, I just, the pit thought that Rich Friesen had gone berserk. And I went on to make many times the 200,000. I started building a trading firm. But what was fascinating is about, Half of the very well-qualified people I had, I hired to trade, half of them just couldn't make money. Another quarter of them would uh, do okay, and a quarter of them just took off and made money like me with my system. So then I thought, what if? What if they have the same belief system or identity issues that I did? So I brought in a hypnotherapist and... Under hypnotherapy, one of them discovered that he couldn't make more than his dad. Irrational. His dad was an immigrant, worked multiple jobs, just struggled to put him through a good school, and he just really honored and worshipped his dad. But if he just made money easily, it would be a repudiation of all his dad and all the work. Now, I know it's irrational, but subconsciously, those were the connections. Another one came from just dirt poor poverty in uh, uh, in West Virginia. And, you know, it was big families, uncles, cousins, you know, hundreds of people in their immediate family. And if he made money, he said, I will lose my family because they won't understand that at all. So in order not to lose his connection to his family, he just would make some money and then blow it away. And there was a couple of other examples of that. And so once we re- they realized, you know, what was that internal story, that internal limitation, much like myself, then they took off and started making money. So you asked, you know, what, what moved me down this road? And what it was, was a very personal and a, a very financial reason to keep these traders you know, profitable and making money. And after I left trading and I was financially secure, I don't have to worry about work. I looked at the world and their relationship to money, especially in today's culture. Now, I don't know where you are politically or culturally, but I think we can all understand that there's really mixed messages. On one hand, the wealthy, the famous, they're, you know, on all the magazines, they're on all the blogs, you know, we worship them, we see glitzy pictures of them at balls. And, and, and on the other hand, we look at wealthy people as greedy, as uh, selfish, and money is evil, and we need to tax the rich, and we need to punish them because they are being unfair. And we need to look at social justice and equity and equality. So it doesn't matter which, you know, which of those is more important to you. But the point is, if we internalize those two things, 
We are internal conflict, just like my traders were. And then it's hard to be clear. And even if you want to live a, a lower financial lifestyle, but even then, it's it's conflicting internally. As you see the world around you, maybe even doing better or getting wealthy. Amazing. So that's why I wrote the book, A Private Conversation with Money, along with the online course that has the exercises that are in the book. Okay, there's amazing story. I have a number of questions. I'll go back sequentially. So, okay. Just curious about where that exchange was. What was the corner it was on? I assume it was in downtown San Francisco. 201 Pine Street. Pine so, Bush, yeah. whatever cool. the North South downtown. Street was there. Amazing. Yeah, yeah that's just really interesting because my first job out of college was in a repurposed old financial institution on uh, Montgomery and Pine, I believe. So, anyway. Oh, real close, just, right there. Yeah, yeah. So, I can visualize it. Um, and that's it. That's, I think you're completely onto something with the internalization because. Something that I have to remind myself with a lot of these social discussions, that's a generous way to describe them, <laughs> <laughs> is, is that it's really a vocal minorities on either end of the opinion spectrum that are the, that are the mm-hmm. loudest. And I think there's this pressure to capitulate to these very extreme perspectives because they're the loudest or the most visible, but they don't represent the rational mass of people and their opinions, especially I think in regards to making money, I've never actually met anyone in my young life who said you shouldn't have lofty goals like that. You shouldn't, you shouldn't pursue money. Money's going to corrupt you. Everyone understands the desire to, to, to be secure and to be happy with, with one's earning potential. And also I feel like, Worrying about the corrupting power of money is a problem to worry about once one has money. If you, you know, if you don't have it, don't worry about cross that bridge when you get to it. Right? That's <laughs> what you're bringing up is really important. I've had clients who, well, let me put it this way: I'll ask a client, "What do you lose?" When you're wealthy, well, I won't lose anything. That'll be great. Help me. What do you mean? What will I lose? No. What will you lose? And when we work down, some of it is I'm afraid I'll become an SOB. I'm afraid I'll be one of them. So we can say you can cross that uh, street when you get to it, but it is a subconscious anchor. I. Um, I mean, all my clients, I don't know how it is, but my clients all have good hearts. The, the guy, the, the assholes just uh, don't, aren't attracted to me. So with the good <laughs> hearts, they don't want to become assholes. So it's a subconscious anger and they sub- sabotage themselves in order not to be, to take the risk of becoming a bad person. There's And there's a whole bunch of other give-ups give that most people, we can uncover with most people, such as if we look at the trader who came from West Virginia, is I'll lose my family and friends. 
In other words, if your friends are all hand to mouth, making a salary, you know, going to the bar on weekends, and all of a sudden you have more money, as much as you don't want to, the fear is that will create a separation. For some people, it means that others will come to them and beg for money and they don't want to deal with that. For some, it means, oh, the overhead of the taxes, all the issues around wealth. Man, I just want to be free. I don't want to be tied down by all that. And there's there's a dozen different things that come up when we work, what the give up is. Those give ups create sabotage. And it's okay to not want to be wealthy. Absolutely. But if you want to be wealthy and you have an internal sabotage, then that leads to a life that is not fully expansive and pleasurable. So what does the nitty gritty look like with a client? And I'd also like to work backwards to get your perspective on how someone who is hand to mouth can kind of break out of that. But to start with, when you're with a client who has those fears, you know, there will be listeners in this audience who have high aspirations who come from Mm -hmm. humble backgrounds maybe and have a similar Mm -hmm. discontent. So what are the kind of most common barriers you have to break down and and how do you go about that? I know it's a general question, but everyone's unique. Everyone's different. So what we do is we start with the symptoms. You know, what are the behavioral symptoms? I spend all my money every paycheck, uh, or I'm deeply in debt, I can't stop spending. Uh, the Amazon man has to come every day to make me feel good. <laughs> I just noticed, I just, the dog was barking, so I went to the door and there was three Amazon packages all to my wife. And I went, you know what? And I felt a little, oh. <laughs> I, I caught myself feeling that, oh. <laughs> so, there's, yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of symptoms that people have. So then what we do, as I mentioned earlier, we looked at what is the positive intent of that behavior? Oh, it makes me feel good in the moment. I feel like I'm somebody. I can impress my my neighbors or I can prove to my dad I'm somebody. Or, you know, if we have a hole in the heart, you know, if you and I have a personal connection, and it's open and honest, we can really have a meaningful experience that fills some of the deepest stuff. If we have a hole in the heart, like I grew up with, a big hole in the heart, then we look to fill all sorts of other things into it that never quite make it because we get a thrill for a little bit and then it doesn't quite work. So we work on what are the symptoms? Then we say, okay, what's the positive intent? And we work down, okay, what's the positive intent of that? And go down two or three layers. And once we get to a core positive intent, then we can start to work on how can that core positive intent be better expressed or what behaviors will really support it. And sometimes that is a 30-minute process. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. And sometimes, depending on the level of trauma, how much of their physiology, their emotions, and their thoughts have been quarantined, sometimes that's sanding away and it's drip, drip, drip for a while. 
Amazing. So you have a very, well, very great energy, first of all. You know, I, I feel comfortable. I can imagine your clients feel comfortable with you. Mm-hmm. But you also have this, you know, exposure to the traditional financial services industry, which, you know, very machismo and, and all of this. So Exactly. I think that actually ties into the topic of the evolving role of men in American society mm-hmm. and their relationship to money. Mm-hmm. So perhaps I can give my assessment as a young person and then we can kind of uh, compare notes. That would be great because that's a, a piece of experience that I am fuzzy on. So I'd love to hear about your experience or the experience of the people in your audience and your compatriots. Mm-hmm. I would say, uh, so my peer group is, of my immediate friend group, is actually, I would say, a pretty more centrist, conservative uh, group of fellows. We went mm-hmm. to a you know, pretty traditional in some ways. It was a, a private all-boys high school, so... You know, you can kind of get a, a, a idea of the social hierarchies, I guess, that were yeah. present in, in the youth, yeah. you know. And and so I think that's why I get the balancing perspective of, of, of saying there's like a rational mass in the middle. Um, actually, I'm one of the – I'm only 27. I think I'm one of the last in my peer group to get engaged, which, you know, all the narratives we hear about, young people are that, you know, no one's getting engaged, no one's getting married, no one's buying houses. Not having kids. Not having kids. But I, I know people my age who, who are doing that. Um, so I think that there actually are still a lot of the nuclear family types out there. Mm-hmm. But I would say that the caveat now is that most relationships have at least some level of awareness of what do we want to change about this dynamic, if anything? And there are some mm-hmm. who do change it and there are some who don't. But I think that's much more common. And, and it's kind of funny to, to think about, but even you know the generational changes of there are now more women graduating college than men Sure, has a, you know, a downstream effect on things like this, even though it's kind of funny because I grew up with the – it was normal, right, for my generation to have smart girls in the classroom, but that, you know, is is a, is a new thing relative to, you know, the last 200 years, or at least having, mm-hmm. you know, smart girls who feel empowered, right, and not um, sent back to the home. So I'd say there's there's not that much of a difference from my perspective in the in the actual outcomes, but the awareness and the discussions are much more common and and each couple can kind of choose how they want to go about things. Yeah. There's a tremendous amount of choice and freedom. And I think there's in this transition, there's a lot of confusion and loss. Uh, I can see a feminization of the male especially the white male, you know, there's just a lot of (laughs) negative, (laughs) negative press around that. And by God, you know, as people with good hearts, last thing we want to be is an oppressive male. Oh my gosh, no, 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 no. 
<laughs> so, you know, the question then is in this transition where women are having more empowerment, are able to set boundaries, are able to make choices for their lives, able to determine their own values, which is all wonderful. You know, the, I think there, there's a loss. You know, Jordan Peterson, I don't know if you follow him at all or read anything from him, he talks about the lost uh, young adult male. And I have had clients, male clients, who feel so lost in their masculinity and they don't know how to express it. And as a result, they've uh, forgone relationships with women because they just don't know how. So the question is then, how are you fully male? Like there are some groups where uh, transformational type groups that I belong to and I'll walk into a room and I swear I'm the only man there. Uh, the rest of the men have more of a feminine quality to them. And I'm, I'm not, a, I, there's no judgment there, but in this transition, how do we have biological drives in the sense that the neuro, our, their male neurology, our hormonal neurology, our previous purpose and mission in life as a man is now being evolved and changing. So as men, how do we handle that? And I would be very interested to see if any of that is makes sense to you, or if not, you know, by the way, I love pushback. So feel free to push back on anything. So, you know, is how do you handle that? Is that the case or do you see the world differently? I think there is definitely a huge opportunity cost in the change. Um, and I actually don't think there's much awareness of it. Bingo. So Correct, what do you see as the opportunity? Yeah. If you were to bring that to yeah. awareness, what would you say would be the opportunity cost? How would you bring it to awareness? And how would you invite people to a better mindset in their lives? I think the opportunity cost is stemming from a lack of positioning in relation to previous generations and younger generations. You know, men of my age with this change, even if they're bought in or not, the changes are, unless they very consciously kind of fortify a really traditional family, they're going to have a hard time relating to their older generation and then perhaps turning around and raising a younger generation about what it is to be a man if they haven't thought about it. So I kind of I kind of liken it to the the the, the vehicle has been changed mid drive with no new instructions or or, or kind of a yeah. manual on how to operate the vehicle. Yeah. And exactly. Well said. Thank you. Yeah, so there's there's some there's some danger there. <laughs> there's it, it matters because <laughs> 
we want to we want to drive it safely and i think you know i've thought a lot about the emasculization of of men and it's something i i grapple with because i i would say i have very strong feminine and masculine qualities mm-hmm. and it's something that i promote on this show the show is more of a promotion of the feminine in a lot of ways mm-hmm. but i'm also grounded in my masculine qualities and so to bring awareness to it i would say just thinking about when you know maybe for like the the, the men who have been uh, emasculated in the sense or kind of self-flagellated too much particularly white men like us what i'll ask the question what stories are you going to tell your kids about what it means to be a man mm-hmm. if you had to have that conversation right now with a younger cousin or a son mm-hmm. what would you say because that's what i would say the biggest opportunity cost is you know the next generation how are we gonna what narratives are we going to tell them so they feel grounded and, and have a purpose well, having the purpose, I think, is one of the most important things there are. There is. Without purpose, then we're into how do I feel, and drugs, sex, alcohol, you know, those things then start to play a bigger role without a mission. And one of the things that makes masculinity, one part of it in my current way of thinking is mission. And if we don't have the mission, and if I look at my own life and I look at my own feminization as a, as a therapist, of course, you go through the, f- the feminine roles and you just drop way down in there. Cause if you can't do that and can't be there, that's, and that's quarantined. So I dropped down and the large, large part of me just stayed there. And if I look at my own career, I told the story about being aggressive in the pit. But as soon as I step out of the pit, I step back into a less aggressive role. Uh, my wife, uh, by the way, November 1st, uh, wedding anniversary, 53 years. I hope you're enjoying this week's episode of the Bro Nouveau podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it and bringing it to you. Get involved in the conversation. I can be reached at contact at bronouveau.com. You can also connect with me on Instagram at bronouveaupod. If you're enjoying this episode, please share it with friends or family to continue to grow the show. Full-length video episodes are also available on YouTube. Just search Bro Nouveau Podcast. Enjoy. Three kids, six grandkids. <laughs> Thank you. But in awesome. my own home, <laughs> I, I'm i probably more of the feminine of the two partners. My wife is very intelligent, uh, knows what she wants, goes and gets it. She's very well organized. Um, so I play the more romantic, feminine, soft, understanding part. And that that's worked for us for 53 years. But where it hasn't worked is in my own business life. If I look at my opportunities 
knowing where the future was going. In fact, I fought, I, I can give you several examples. I have patents, 10 patents that predicted the future that are now very valuable. Uh, I encouraged the Pacific Exchange when I was on the board of governors to go all electronic and we could have, we could have been the biggest exchange in the world. You know, so there was all these things I saw in the future. But did I have that masculine drive to win, to excel, to succeed? Because what that means is sometimes you got to bump up against somebody and bump them out of the road, just knock them out of the road. And you need to keep moving with that aggressive, almost you know, battle-like uh, mode. If I look at the people who are successful, there's varying degrees, of course, and, and, and there's even ways to be more feminine, to build rapport with your team and create uh, structure around that. But for me, I think my own feminization, the, you, you talked about the side effects of that was that I was not nearly as aggressive in doing what the future I saw and how to build it. Go ahead. I was going to say that matters because perhaps if you had, um, or if anyone, if they had that drive, they could have enacted the change that they wanted to get a better life for them in, a, in the society. Like it mm -hmm. matters because some people might say, "Oh, but look at you're fine. You know, you did you did okay." But it's like no, like we, if if we want it, we're talking about reaching potential and we're talking about maximizing our capacity as humans in our short lives. Why, why not, you know, go for it? And I think especially in, in theories of business, there's an understanding from people that it's a, it's a competitive landscape. You know, and if you're not ready for that, you're playing the wrong game. Yeah, there is a competitive landscape and there is a social and cultural movement to remove the competitive landscape. If we look at if the again, you talk about the extremes. You know, if you look at extremes of wokeism, uh, that is an attempt to remove the competitive landscape for sure. Yeah, I, I saw something that really had me thinking. On it's a company. I think it was like a. I, I don't know the company's purpose, but they were definitely, you know, like a, a woke aligned organization, mm -hmm. and they made a post. I think it was on LinkedIn about we're leaving Twitter. There's been a rise in uh, hate speech on Twitter because of Musk. We as an organization do not, you know, comply with this or you know, stand for this. We're gonna, we're leaving, and I mm -hmm. just thought that was just so dumb. Yeah, like I I I get I understand the desire to um, speak with actions and do, you know, do something. But I believe the way to engage with bad actors and bad ideas is to disable them with better ideas. And mm -hmm. also the, the small minority of people who are saying racist things are going to be immediately identified and self-isolate because the, it's, it's anti-social behavior in the purest sense of it. It goes sure. against improving the, the, the common, the common ground. And I don't think that 
anyone reasonable or rational would engage with them or see them for anything but what they are, which is an antisocial bigot. Sure. And, I, and I really, I just think, I also, the nature of making a post about it, to almost, it, to me, it was seeking a pat in the back. It was seeking a, oh, good job. You did the right thing. And in my head, I'm saying, actually, no, you're doing the wrong thing because all this does is, is further isolate you away from ideas you don't like and then them away from ideas that could actually change their mind and push back on them. And, and, mm-hmm. I, and the, the idea, I think, is that if we allow, you know, bigots to have a, a platform on Twitter, then, then someone could be radicalized or someone could be, you know, um, someone uh, malleable could be influenced, but I think if if uh, the counterforce removes themselves from the from the discussion, then there's no counterforce to prevent that. The best way to prevent radicalization is by other ideas for those young people, right? So I just yeah. You know, I, you know, if we look at radicalization, and uh, I read a book and I'm not going to remember the name of it, but it was about a Muslim in England who got radicalized. And we have to, again, look at the hole in the heart and the emptiness. You know, there's lots of ways to handle it, alcohol, drugs. And one way is a true belief in a system whereby your belief is so strong that it's all ethical systems fall away because your goal and your mission is so great. And if we look at those who are liable to fall into that hole, you know, then the question is, how can we invite them to fill that hole in their heart so there's, there isn't that uh, pressure to do that? Totally. And it gets back to who's liable to fall into that. It's lost young men <laughs> who... Mm-hmm. Ooh, ooh, ouch, ouch. Yeah. What you're talking about is if, <laughs> wow, I hadn't thought about this, but if we emasculate the men, they feel lost, they have no meaning, their biological purpose isn't quite there, are they more prone to radicalization? For sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's not funny. <laughs> I'm yeah, laughing, sorry. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm the type of person to laugh at uh, uh, bad things. I don't know. I just uh, have that kind of uh, humor, I guess. Yeah. I know. I do, I do, too. Yeah. So the question then becomes, how do we, as human beings, reach out to everyone we can to help them fill that hole in the heart? And sometimes that's really deep. It comes from you know, birth on when that hole was built. And it's a really challenging problem, and humans are not perfect. We've never been perfect. No political or economic system is going to make us feel perfect. So we kind of limp along, and we all kind of move the needle where we can with the skills we have, with the reach we have. And in the book, uh, Private Conversation with Money, in the conversation between Joe, the journalist, and the character Money, uh, they're arguing about economic and political systems. And so Money says, you know, what if everyone woke up tomorrow and said, how can I deliver value to my family, 
my employer, my employees, my clients, my consultants, uh, my customers? How can I, with the skills I have, deliver more value? And how can I gain more knowledge and more skills to deliver more value to the to everyone in my occupation or my business, or even if I'm a nonprofit or, you know, or if I'm a, a religious person, how can I deliver more value? What if everyone in the world woke up with that attitude? All of a sudden, politics wouldn't matter. <laughs> Economic systems wouldn't be as important because both of those are top-down structures to try to overcome and overwhelm our humanity, which has all the problems that we all know that we have. Everyone has the hole in the heart. And I think that's why selfish behavior is so prominent. And Mm -hmm. it takes either an incredibly fertile environment when someone's young or conscious effort as an adult, I think, to develop that value add mindset with the understanding that bringing value to other people will then enrich us literally enrich or spiritually relationally sure yeah so i I think i think the the solution is a blend of both kind of traditional masculine models and then also new age self-awareness um because i i have friends who are very i would say not in their masculine power Mm -hmm. and i think they would be happier if they expressed their masculinity more whether it was through physical fitness is a huge one for me personally. Yep. Yep. The feeling of going and doing a hard workout, doing something difficult and seeing a response mentally and with uh, hypotrophy, muscle growth is very, Mm -hmm. it's very rewarding. It's simple, but it gives a, a concrete base. And then I also know people, particularly from playing sports who I play rugby with or have played rugby with, previously who are these very archetypal masculine men you know they're this mm-hmm. big strong bsb we call them big strong boys <laughs> <laughs> but the the engagement and the communication and the expression you know isn't quite there and i can also see an area for growth there then of course in myself areas for growth right there's always areas for growth but i think it's a blend and I don't know. I've, uh, solutions wise, I re- I really feel like the thing is we can never make someone go to that place. They have to want to do it. You know, there's such. I think there's enough resources out there. There's there's a world of resources, individuals like yourself out there to speak to, to learn from. But unless someone wants to have the spark internally, we can't we can't do anything, right? We can the whole lead the sheep to water analogy. I think that your energy, when you walk into a room, subconsciously shifts the room. Mm -hmm. If you are okay with your masculinity and 
also you you talk about it about a blend. I have a little different way of looking at it, but let's just call it the blend for now. Able to listen to somebody. There is a subconscious invitation that I think if enough time starts to with done enough times with enough people will start to change the world. So if Thomas says, I'm comfortable with my masculinity, you walk into a room with with men who aren't, let's say, and you can look at them with compassion and understanding and talk to them from your masculine place, which isn't threatening to them. Oh my God, I think that that can open up an invitation. And use the word blend, and I think that that is a workable world word, but I'd like to introduce a different model. And the different model is wave. Uh, if I am walking in the city and somebody jumps out from an alley with a knife and starts to go after my wife, I will kill him <laughs> if I can. No question, no guilt. I won't yep. feel bad for a minute. <laughs> so there's that level of masculinity. And then we can go all the way up to transformational space to where we all feel like we're one. And there's many steps, you know, many uh, stages along the way. So rather than a blend, I look at it like a wave. What arena when I'm in? I was brought up a fundamental evangelical. My father was a preacher. I went to church nonstop. <laughs> in fact, I think I had five years of perfect attendance. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I walk into a church, I know all the hymns, I know how to behave, I know when to stand up, I know when to sit down. I can step into that context. If I am giving a presentation to an audience, and I know the type of audience, I can step into that, I can look into their eyes, and I can be there and match them in a way and make an invitation. So the my concern about blend and balance kind of words are they they take energy from both sides of that. When I, I want to I, step in, I, I step I into my feminine role, I want to be fully in my feminine role. So for example, I'm the romantic partner partner in my wife. Candles, flowers, you know, that kind of a thing for her. Lovely. <laughs> Not as much. Yeah. But I can supply that. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm in my masculine role, for example, I've done extensive training with weapons. In fact, more, more training than most police officers. I'm fully in that masculine role. Uh -huh. When I'm a therapist, that's, that's a different role. So, for me, it's like, can we fully step into the role that is appropriate in that environment that creates the best situation, not only for ourselves, but for everyone around us? I think that's a wonderful model. And I agree with you. There's a there's a idea that how we do anything is how we do everything. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, like talking about why it matters to be thinking about this and care about this as men is that 
if we go into a situation confused and one foot in, one foot out, that bleeds mm-hmm. over into the rest of our lives. It bleeds over into how we first impress people and that affects the relationships we make, how our spouse subconsciously sees us. Does our spouse, for me, I really, I really care about being very um, consistent and a solid rock for my partner, my girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Also, interested to get your perspective on the word partner. It's very triggering for some, <laughs> for some people. What what was triggering the the word partner as opposed to girlfriend or boyfriend? Oh, yeah. Some people don't like that, which I find funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's it. Would be interesting to see. Okay, when I say the word partner, what do you notice physiologically? Yeah. What emotions come up? What are your thoughts? So you know, again, any almost everything that gets a reaction is a key to a deeper belief about the world and themselves and maybe even a reaction from their core identity. So I just love talking to clients because they just subconsciously give me all the cues I need and know where to go. It's, it's, it's really awfully simple. (laughs) It's amazing what that external perspective can give us having someone who's who's pulled out from the day-to-day doesn't know us mm-hmm. personally we don't see them around town and then you just you know as a client you just describe anything and they're like oh xyz what do you think about that and it's like <laughs> like oh my god you're right <laughs> wow okay well there's so many things i could ask your perspective on let's go for the idea of American cities and the perceived and actual demise of cities when it comes to uh, things like homelessness, drug addiction, violence. Mm -hmm. There's a big, again, of course, narrative by each side about who's to blame and, and these things. But, you know, you still live in a metro area. I know San Jose can have definitely suburban feeling parts, but you're in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. So when you hear these ideas and discussions about the demise of the American city and also ways to change it, how do you engage with, do you engage with these ideas and, and how do you, how do you engage with them? Well, you really like asking the hard questions, don't you? <laughs> well, fortunately, I have the absolute truth and the final answer. So you ready? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, most of the people are either have severe mental uh, conditions, psychosis, uh, severe addictions, uh, inability to think coherently because of a lot of brain damage, and there are some people who just like the freedom and they just like, uh, you know, they don't want to work. They don't want to answer to anybody for whatever reason. And then there are some people who for medical reasons or job or you know, sometimes just the whole world dumps on them uh, end up being homeless. So there's a lot of causes. But if we look at, you know, what are you going to do from a top down level? There are some Probably, you know, we need to experiment with some solutions. 
but the one the one where where they're they are allowed to invade boundaries like last time, I, I don't go to San Francisco anymore unless I have to last time I was there it I felt threatened and I'm a six foot two guy and uh, nobody really should mess with me but um, I felt threatened so we have a boundary violation problem and that needs to end but you know so if we we look at a very close relative of mine her oldest son died of fentanyl. He was an addict, and the youngest son is an alcohol, and the other son is an alcoholic. So, what you know, say what? How do we? What do we? How do we address this? You know, early on, and some of it just may not be addressable. Our brains just aren't. We aren't just super people. Sometimes neurochemicals make shifts so that some people can't be happy without a boost. Sometimes uh, early traumas, even not induced by the parents, but just traumas that create an isolation. And who knows about, you know, if I look at all my kids and grandkids, all have very different personalities, almost from day one. So there's just a huge amount of difference. We as people are are just fragile in many ways. So what do we do is, you know, for me, it's loving parents. I look at how I grew up and I said, I'm not going to be like my dad, who was a narcissist and gone most of the time. I'm My mom was depressed most of the time. So I ended up looking for approval, looking for them to fill that empty hole in my heart. Fortunately, I didn't go to drugs. I didn't do anything self-destructive. But man, there was an edge there. It was close. Um, so, you know, if, if we have loving parents, if we have a stable situation, kids that know they're loved, know they're, they are acknowledged and appreciated, not for outcomes, but for the processes they're creating to live their lives better, we give them a good education, give them good advice about how to live their life um, you know, and what kind of things to study and where the where the economy is going, the chances are much better they're going to do well. But that isn't a solution for what's going on today. And uh, I think we just need to do some experiments. You know, there's a number of different ways we can do it and just find out and see what happens. But it's an unsolvable, unsolvable problem that nobody's going to be happy with. Yeah, good good assessment, I'd say. There are some really interesting programs to deal with um, getting people off the street. And there's so many factors that just, I would say the parallel, just like, you know, how we engage with money, how we engage with our masculinity, how we engage with our work affects every other aspect of our lives. Mm -hmm. You know, in the same way, there are so many factors that influence the end situation that we see of people struggling. And yeah, I would say I'm actually surprisingly optimistic on that because I do think that of course there will always be people who are struggling and, and lost, but I think there's enough of a concern that there will be some good experimentation, as you said, to get some type of better result because it's, it's not tenable. 
And maybe ultimately it's economic and it's if these cities lose enough business or tax revenue, they'll try something different. Um, yeah. I think that the, well, that's a whole new discussion, uh, the dynamics of politics. But I think we're seeing a reaction and and we'll see what happens to it. Because I think that the, the postmodernist philosophy as expressed in economics, in politics, in psychology, in education has gone too far in a way that it's, it's going to, uh, we're going to see a reaction set in. Absolutely. I, I think, yeah, I think there already is one in some ways. And my, my problem, I guess with, or my intellectual disagreement with the very progressive ideas is that if unless they're rooted in empirical results, then they don't have an absolutist stamp of authority in my mind. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we go wrong in that kind of fixating on some people call it a quality of outcome. Some people, there are different names for it, but I think kind of fixating on these ideas that sound great in theory, unless they have empirical results, then I think they deserve to be scrutinized. And I think that's where we're going to lose as a whole. If we can't scrutinize ideas and talk about them, then who yeah, are they it's, helping? Yeah, it's tough to talk about ideas when our core identity is tied up in a belief system. Like I said, I grew up Christian mm -hmm. evangelical. I carried my Bible to high school. And if you had, <laughs> I felt I couldn't date girls who weren't Christians because they were going to hell. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I look back on that and I go, boy, did you miss out. <laughs> um, but, you know, I was so steeped in that belief system and, to have a conversation with somebody who was, oh, my God, a papist, a Catholic, you know, it would be almost impossible. And so I, I think the biggest movement in my own life was when I read a book called The Book of Not Knowing by Peter Walston. And it just showed, and along with my NLP studies, how my certainty is just a bunch of neural connections that many times have nothing to do with reality. And letting go of the fact that I could know the absolute truth, that was a fucking painful process. Because <laughs> it's so comfortable to know you have the truth. So if party over here has the truth and party over here has a different truth, and you say, well, let's just have a conversation, a civil conversation, it's, it's not going to happen. Awesome, Richard. Well, you answered my next question, which is always an ending question about book recommendations. So thank you. That's a tough one and a good one. Yeah. But of course, the best book re recommendation is a private conversation with money. I know the <laughs> author personally, just a <laughs> hell of a guy. <laughs> hell of a book. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'm going to put up uh, 
a webpage, uh, conversations.money slash BRO, and they can go then and get a free course and uh, get introduced to our other work. And there's just a lot of good resources there. Awesome. Well, you are a bro nouveau, Richard. Thank you. Thank you for your time. You're a Renaissance man. So thoughtful and a very impressive. Um, I don't, I don't, um, at the risk of sounding ageist, it's inspiring to meet someone of an older generation who has the, the mindset and the flexibility uh, that you do. It's, it's very uh, inspiring to me. So thank you. Excellent. Well, Thomas, I got to have a criticism for you. Asking the really hard questions. <laughs> what? No softballs for Rich? <laughs> oh, I really appreciate it. And I appreciate the hard questions because it made me think and it made for a real conversation. So thank you. Cheers. Have a great rest of your day. Okay. Take care.